Welcome back, Coughlin Bond listeners. We're here with Podcast 68. And as discussed, we'll be doing a six-week, I guess, little mini-series of um, SME owners and bringing in people that it's worthwhile uh, listening to and how they can help set up those businesses. So today what we have is Lisa Fitzgerald from Lander Rogers Lawyers, who I think it's the right time to get this person in, uh, especially with her background. She specialises in technology, media, telecommunications, IP, data, and privacy. And in the world that we're living in right now, Lisa, that is becoming very important. So thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, with COVID, have you seen the increase of work? It's, I guess we're doing this via Zoom at the moment um, and doing that recording. So has work picked up on your end in regards to this, this time? Absolutely. I've seen um, businesses come into my practice that I've never advised before. Um, everyone's seeing the opportunity or the necessity to innovate uh, in order to keep doing business um, and comply with things like social distancing and contact tracing and um, that sort of thing. So, yeah, businesses across the board are being forced to um, innovate and adopt technology and understand uh, the implications of additional data protection and data management and any risks that might arise with that. Tony, um, we, we were talking before and it's, it's interesting, you've found, managed to find a lot of good lawyers um, through the use of LinkedIn online as well. I have, yes. So I, I have LinkedIn is um, my lawyers and accountants dating app. So it's, <laughs> so it's basic. <laughs> so it's, um, no, I, I have formed some wonderful relationships um, with uh, some great centers of influence and people that we love to refer clients to actually via uh, LinkedIn. So um, predominantly lawyers and accountants. Yeah. So it's, um, and thus how I met Lisa. So it's um, Lisa and I have had, numerous conversations uh, yet to meet actually face to face but uh, I've got Lisa working on one of our clients uh, right now who is actually an IT company but needs to protect obviously some uh, work that they have developed and built themselves as well so and that's how we met and looking forward to working together because uh, all those people that we've met and worked with Lisa just to let you know like 10-15 years later we're still working together yeah, so it's been it's been a good relationship, and I did notice actually on Lisa's bio that she actually did start work, at, uh, which were very large clients of ours. Well, actually, you didn't start there as a lawyer. Yeah, I think you'd worked previously, but uh, Baker McKenzie. So it's uh, had a lot of had a lot of dealings with bakers, and I think at the time you were there, uh, I was working with them at the, that time as well. So yeah, never met you, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, but I I did a lot of work with them at that time as well. So, Lisa, yep. oh, sorry. So, I guess I'll start today. Um, in the world that we're living with and people trying to protect their IP, uh, what's the starting point for someone trying to protect it? I guess, is it understanding what the actual intellectual property is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are a lot of different types of intellectual property and um, identifying the different IP assets that you have in your business and how important they are to your business is definitely the first step. Um, so, you know, you've got potentially some copyright material in your business. It might not be the core of your business, but it might be um, within your business and it's something that's of value to you and should be protected. You might have um, trademarks, branding. Most businesses have some sort of branding um, that, that they should be protecting or making sure that they're not actually um, inviting liability by using a brand that hasn't been cleared. 
um, there's patents or um, inventions that can be protected either through registration or sometimes via a trade secret or confidential information. Um, and there's, you know, there's a range of different intellectual property rights. But I think one that is relevant to everyone at the moment is the underlying um, intellectual property rights in technology. So technology obviously is um, code-based and that can be copyright uh, protected. Uh, and it's something that businesses can commonly create themselves from scratch or they will use existing um, software from a third party. And so that in itself is something that, that everyone should be able to identify that's used in their business and that could need protecting for the purposes of um, ensuring against liability in the future that you're not using the technology outside of its license, for example, or if you want to ultimately commercialise um, something that you've created from scratch, an app or some other technology that you've been able to develop in-house, you want to then be able to potentially exploit it um, for broader purposes and, and create new revenue streams. You've actually raised two questions for me just on what you said there, Lisa. So if you don't mind, if I can sort of circle back. Um, first of all, patents and inventions. Uh, what happens if you are working for a large company, let's say the likes of an IBM or something like that, and you come up with a patent yourself? So actually you're working on, uh, on their time, uh, but you actually have come up with patents, etc. Who actually owns the intellectual rights of that? Or if you're actually doing it whilst being paid by them, do, do you own it? Because I, I have noticed a, a number of people, and I, I specifically say IBM for a, an actual reason, but it's um, uh, an individual there who's whilst working there now has 17 individual patents, um, all associated with stuff that's been done with IBM. So who actually owns that? Uh, yeah, well, um, intellectual property ownership is usually dealt with contractually so whether it's something that um, it, it may not be patentable but it may be something that's protected by copyright and usually contractual arrangements will ensure that that, that intellectual property on creation vests with uh, the employer. Um, uh, inventions are really interesting particularly when it comes to registering patents because you need to identify who the inventor is which will usually be the person uh, but the, as I say, it's usually dealt with contractually and uh, and um, I guess uh, in fair compensation for the work that's being carried out for the business. And in, in, in saying that, I'm, I'm a history buff, especially of the uh, Industrial Revolution, but uh, Thomas Edison was pretty well known for taking all of his employees, uh, putting his name in all of his employees' inventions, wasn't he? Uh, with all the <laughs> patents. Yeah, well... Um, that's, that's right. Look, um, today we have, um, particularly in the world of copyright, you have moral rights, which um, are, are something that don't automatically vest. So intellectual property is generally speaking, um, yeah, property that can vest, the ownership of which can vest in another party. Um, but moral rights, those rights of attribution and authorship that can't be um, automatically vested in, in a third party, even if they commission a particular um, piece of work so yeah it's it's definitely a complex area <laughs> and, um, which is why we then, need lawyers well that's right just to make sure you, <laughs> you can use what you want to use and exploit what you you want to exploit and yeah, yeah. and um, keep liabilities at bay 
Yeah, I think it's fair to say that uh, good old Tesla felt a bit exploited by Edison uh, during his times there. So, but um, but anyway, that aside. <laughs> so it's uh, but in, it brings me to another question. Then you spoke about um, building apps, etc. So, um, what happens if you do have, for example? I come up with a brainstorming idea for an app for financial services. I think it's wonderful. Uh, Jamie thinks it's okay. And he, <laughs> let, and he lets me go out and uh, decide to spend some money on getting an app developer to actually build it and uh, things like that. And we have seen this happen in the past, not with our clients, but um, where the person who actually then developed the app uh, claims ownership of it. Um, at that time so so where where do you where do we at that stage I suppose if I was to do that I would have been quite naive not to bring in a lawyer to make sure we have a contract to start with but you know that app designer might have been a mate of mine or a friend of mine who owns a, an IT company and and is a lot smarter in that area than what I am so where do you actually stand there where do we bring in Lisa Fitzgerald on that case well I, I guess the sort of example you're describing is is that classic case where um, the most creative and innovative and fun ideas can develop in a relaxed environment where you're with friends and outside of a work context. Um, and so, and, and quite often it can be something that will just, you know, be a great idea, let's go into business together and, you know, and create this, this wonderful app that's going to change the world. Um, and, you know, in this fail fast <laughs> environment where you just want to get things done, you can really um, kind of expedite the process of writing the code that's needed and, and allocating roles and responsibilities in a, in a kind of informal context. And that's where the problems begin because you haven't, um, you haven't worked out, okay, who's going to own the IP? You might even get to a point where you say, okay, well, let's create a company and we'll do a shareholders agreement and we'll invest all of our kind of limited funds to set up the corporate structure, which is also important. But if it's an IP business, like an app, you know, the underlying IP of an app is um, copyright, um, if you haven't vested that copyright from whoever's writing the code, your mate who's writing the code, then it is going to be something that he owns. And so if the relationship sours and, you know, okay, well, we were going to do this, but, you know, we're not going to do it anymore or, or the two of us are going to do it and you're going to be left behind, he'll have leverage <laughs> and he will ensure that um, he holds on to that copyright and, uh, and might license it to you so that you can t continue with your project and investment, but um, that's where the problems arise. Is that the um, is that uh, similar to the example of what happened with uh, Facebook with um, um, Zuckerberg and the what are the twins' names was it Winkle? Uh, <laughs> so it's uh, the I've forgotten their surnames, but they also uh, but where they actually claimed that they actually had funded or did some work or gave him the idea, and at the end of the day, I think they got paid out nearly sixty million dollars. They may have just to keep them quiet. I can't remember the outcome, but I, I think yeah. the basis of, of that dispute was um, that they claimed copyright in the idea that yes. copyright doesn't attach to an idea. Okay. It attaches to the fixed um, communication of that idea. So it's it's the code that Zuckerberg wrote. It's not the idea itself. Yeah, so they still, still got sixty million. <laughs> so it was, yeah, well, uh, yeah, so but you know, I, I think a private equity firm said, "Give them the money and get rid of them." 
Um, so I don't think it was Mark Zuckerberg's money personally when the end it might have been, but yeah, pay him out some money. But it's it's interesting that, isn't it? Sometimes it's hush money. <laughs> yes, yeah, most likely was. So so on that basis, I suppose what we're saying is a lot of a lot of people who and I was I was mentioning just earlier that I'm currently listening to the wars, uh, the business wars, and the one I'm listening to at the moment is Uber versus Lyft, and. The example of what you just gave where Uber basically came up in an idea you know, when they were in Paris and on a winter's day at a tech conference and couldn't catch a taxi. And they were complaining about that. And that's how the idea of Uber came up where, you know, a couple of guys who end up becoming partners. And um, so from that basis, we've also spoken about the fact that Uber does have a huge uh, market capitalization, so valuation, um, but isn't actually earning any money at the moment. So there must be some intellectual property uh, that's been, is Uber was just a startup once upon a time, but there must be some intellectual property that's been protected in there. Otherwise, why would people be investing tens of millions of dollars into Uber? Would that be correct? Mm, that, yeah, that's exactly right. So um, I think one of the problems that a lot of startups I advise have trouble coming to terms with is getting to that next round of funding and and uh, attracting the investment that they need to get to the next level. Or spending $10,000 on legal fees or trying to justify <laughs> in their own mind, which could be, which actually could be the idea, but in doing that, in all fairness uh, to the magnificent work you guys do, that's actually about protecting the hundreds of millions of dollars in value in the uh, future value. It absolutely is because if you, own the intellectual property rights of that business, that's where the value lies. So the example that you've given of Uber, those investors aren't stupid. <laughs> um, they will be able to apply that intellectual property that underlies um, the, the Uber um, app to other uh, industries and other sectors and, um, and exploit the intellectual property yeah, in, in ways that, that are yep. yeah, currently unknown. And the Uber app is absolutely magnificent, although Jamie and I did have a very frightening experience with an Uber driver in Chicago where we still to this day where he was a serial killer and he was, I, th I think he fancied Jamie. I, I yeah, was getting we, out we, of there. We, we, jumped out, <laughs> we jumped out of that car as quick as we possibly could, I think. Well, I, cer I certainly did. Uh, if Jamie got left behind, that was bad luck. He was too slow. <laughs> so, no, that was, uh, that was, that was a scary incident. But otherwise, yeah, it's, it, it is a service, as you said. It's not necessarily making money. Uh, but has a huge valuation because of the technology that's actually backing it and the data uh, that comes from that technology as well. Yeah, exactly right. And um, so many companies, companies are now uh, unlocking the value of their data and understanding how they can um, use it not only for their own efficiency gains, but also for commercialization opportunities. Um, but again, just making sure that the data is um, is clean, um, is reliable, is going to be core to the value of that particular asset. So what? it's definitely something that just it can't be swept under the carpet. It can't be outsourced to um, the IT department. It's got to be treated as something that's going to be on your asset um, book and valued. And to the extent that it's compromised, then you can. You know, Kiss goodbye to some of the valuation, unfortunately. So how, how do you come in at that stage and, and, and you know, make sure it's not compromised and that it is owned by the business? What do you do specifically uh, um, for clients at that stage? 
Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, uh, it's kind of forensic in a way. It's looking at the paper trail, the um, chain of title documents in terms of being able to establish a clear title to the intellectual property, uh, whether that's you know a trademark that's been registered that has been kept up to date, or whether that's you know having intellectual property assignments that need to be in writing. Um, so it's it's coming in to make sure that all of those. Uh, pieces of paper in, are in place and also making sure that to the extent that you license anything to create whatever it is in your business uh, that there are no disproportionate indemnities or other sort of liabilities overhanging the business or you know perhaps um, there are limitations to the use of the license that need to be dealt with and so you might come in and renegotiate the license terms to enable you to do what in fact you've been doing and you, you need to make sure that the house is in order so that you can keep doing it and sell the business or get the valuation that you need. Um, can I can I go down the what you just stated there? So as as you know, this is part of a um, a six interview series for SMEs and talking about valuations, etc. And we we will have in a couple of weeks' time a specialist accounting firm that specialises in doing valuations for companies. Um, be interviewing them as well. But in regards to valuations, um, we've, you've got a company that has done everything good and is, is gearing up for either a trade sale or a private equity investment. We will be speaking to a private equity firm as well. Um, so a private equity investment or gearing up for an IPO. On that basis in respect to the work that you do, can you explain how you can protect those valuations with the agreements that you actually then put in place? Because a company might have a valuation. Somebody might come in and say, yeah, listen, I want this and I'm prepared to pay $45 million for it. But then they turn, then turn around and, you know, well, we're not going to pay a cent for this because we realize it's not protected. So can you mm. talk about how evaluation can go from a wonderful, never have to work again for three generations to all of a sudden potential bankruptcy? Yeah, well, I guess that's where, um, the phrase you can run but you can't hide might sort of help explain this situation that the due diligence process uh, involved in that I guess asset sale or share sale or, or whatever will reveal the the holes in the house um, so you will be required in the due diligence process to disclose um, you know your IP assignments your licensing arrangements and all of that sort of thing and to the extent that there are any um, gaps in in that documentation that will affect your valuation. Yep, and if they've engaged you properly, there shouldn't be any gaps. Well, if they've engaged me from the beginning, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it, but isn't that one of the keys, though, Lisa? Is that um, a company starting out might be earning some money, but you know finances are tight on a month to month basis, and and they tend to skip these little things like not having a buy-sell agreement or a partnership agreement in place, not getting the stuff protected because they nothing's going to happen, we're all going to be great, uh, but they haven't involved you from the beginning. And I would think it would be far more costly to involve you halfway through or, to, or prior you know, to a potential trade sale than what it would have been if they had actually engaged you right from the start. Yeah, I think that's right. The reality is there's a limited budget right in the beginning. So yes. um, lawyers kind of worth the salt will note know that and we'll have to help direct um, that those limited funds to the highest risk issues identifying them all but 
um, helping helping those people to identify well how do we how do we you know reduce our risk against the biggest exposure here that's going to kill our business and then yep. eventually in time um, do everything that they need to do but certainly if I had a dollar for every time someone said I wish I'd done this in the beginning um, I would have been a lot richer <laughs> yeah it's 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 very frustrating to deal with it at the end as opposed to the beginning yeah true Please Sorry, um, I was just I was just thinking so with companies um, I noticed on your on your bio that you um, you know listed data and privacy is it something that all businesses need to consider in the modern world? Like, I guess, you know, everyone's dealing with client data, client information, and they're storing it on their own databases, whatever they use, or a Salesforce, for an example. You know, where does that data lie in protecting it? Is it, is it with the app, say Salesforce, or is it our concern to look after it from, from an employer, from a business, I mean? Yeah, again, another great question. Um, so we have, quite extensive privacy regulation in Australia and also data regulation um, generally. Yeah. And um, from a privacy perspective, it would depend on whether you're um, at what we call an APP entity and have a, a threshold um, annual revenue to sort of fall within the remit of the Act. Um, but most SMEs would fall within that remit. Um, and so, yeah, I think a lot of people do turn a bit of a blind eye to what those obligations entail. You know, you need terms and conditions of use for your website to protect your own IP assets on, on that website. Um, and you need um, collection notices for personal information to the extent that you have any sort of registration page or any other kind of um, point of access into your business from that website that, it, that involves the collection of information. So you need to make sure that you're covering that from a front-end perspective and then from a back-end perspective, you absolutely need to make sure that you're holding that information securely. Um, and yeah, in Australia at least, holding it on, holding on to that information only for the amount of time that you need it. Yeah, because I think a lot of uh, SME businesses, as they grow, they start to use different pieces of technology and, and the way that the world's going, you know, data's pushing with open APIs, data's pushing between different systems. Um, and I think, you know, protecting your data and protecting your client's data is vitally important. Absolutely. Yep. Um, going, keep continuing on data, there's a lot of decent sized businesses now that specialise in data security. Uh, but in regards to uh, cyber security um, and cyber security insurance, if I can just ask you a question without notice here, if that's okay, Lisa. But um, a lot of people are looking at having cyber security insurance in place, but they think they pay the premium and they're covered. You know, life insurance is quite simple. You're either dead or you're not dead. But I'm assuming cyber security insurance is a bit well, far more complicated than that. And so in regards to cyber security insurance, can companies then make mistakes in regards to your breaching uh, their own code of what they would have or thought they would have been covered for under cyber security? Are they still at risk, even though they might have that policy? Uh, yeah, absolutely at risk, and it's an excellent point. Um, it's not enough just to have the cyber insurance. You've got to then also ensure that you comply with um, with the terms of that insurance cover. So if that cover requires you to have a data breach response plan in place, then you better have a data breach response plan in place, and probably you better follow it too um, when you do have an incident. So all of those um, failures in process can actually 
impact whether or not you can make a claim under your policy. So it's not enough just to have the insurance. It's it's really a question of corporate governance. Um, and ASIC and the ASX have come out with guidance to say that those IT um, aspects of your business can't be delegated to the IT department. It has to be given board level uh, commitment and responsibility. And so it needs to have a board mandated process to implement um, you know, those cyber security processes. And that is, is that something your firm does as well for clients? Helps them oh, with absolutely. those processes? Yeah, so yeah, so you guys would, would be able to help uh, our Indeed. clients on that basis, yep. Um, so realistically, what we're talking about here is in engaging you, I see you as being like an insurance policy in some way for our clients in regards to, um, so for example, we have a client and they've got a business and the business is valued at $10 million and there's three partners and we put a simple buy-sell agreement in place and fund it with insurance. So in the event of something horrible happening that the estate has got paid out and so the estate has got the value of the shareholding and the surviving partners are fine. Realistically, I see what you're doing is being an insurance policy by having those agreements in place uh, from an IT and IP perspective for those businesses right from the start. So if they, you know, do survive and are rewarded by riches in the future, basically it's a case of because somebody can't come in and steal their IP or steal their their technology that they built themselves, that they've got the right protections and patents in place. So am I correct in saying that by you doing that, you're giving them some type of, I know insurance is the wrong word, but some type of protection that they are protected against, as you said, cybersecurity attacks, that they're protected against uh, somebody saying, well, this isn't protected, what am I buying? So ensuring that everything is covered. Is that yeah, a fair I, analogy? That's terrific. It's really great. It's very clear. And um, I think, yeah, what I see our value as being is to ensure that the value of any assets is retained that those assets don't turn into a liability inadvertently um, and that the asset can be exploited. So in your example of patents, um, the beauty of, of going to the cost and trouble of getting a patent is that you have that right in relation to that invention exclusively. It's a monopoly right and you can stop anyone else from, from using that particular patent and competing with you essentially. So it's one of those quirks um, we live in a free market, but but patents give you monopoly rights. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's absolutely helping clients to leverage the assets they've got as much as anything as well. And probably one of the best examples of that, and although it's not technology-based, would be Sarah Blakely, who owns Spanx, uh, when they tried to patent a bit of a, a elastic, basically, uh, in regards to, you know, the, uh, well, originally it was just tights, but, it was, it was her original lawyer said, I can't patent this. And eventually they did get a patent and Spanx is, she's now you know, a multi-billionaire as a result of having a magnificent business and great business model, but something she was able to patent. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's, uh, it's gold if you, can, if you can get a patent, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Um, so in closing now, we've, um, you have a short form questionnaire uh, which I have seen to actually, well, it's, it's a bit of a self-audit for clients. Um, and 
Um, now, from that perspective, if we do have clients that reach out, we would like to just be able to put, uh, put them directly to you. So, uh, Willard will put your links uh, to this podcast, if that's okay, with your permission. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. Yep. And you do have a bit of a short-term form questionnaire, which is a self-audit for people to actually start questioning, should they be speaking to you or not? Yeah, it, that's exactly what it is. It's just meant to be um, a helpful tool to, to bring focus to some of the issues that you might not think about yourself. Yeah, um, yeah not everyone's uh, a lawyer. <laughs> no, that's so, true. No, so, definitely so, not. I can, I can back that one up. <laughs> lots Jamie. of bush lawyers. There's lots of bush lawyers. That, um, Jamie uh, hates I reading think... legal agreements. <laughs> I've, I've, read that many, I've read that many agreements over the past few months. I don't know how you guys do it. All respect, I think. <laughs> yeah no it is, well, it is very yeah, very no, true it, it's it's a helpful tool so um it's it's yeah it's designed to help you answer answer questions um to bring focus to your business and and key areas that you might need some help with now from what you've told us today in, in wrapping this up uh lisa but from what you've told us today is that there is so many areas in your business that should be protected uh, that we haven't even necessarily thought of as business owners, as SME owners. Uh, but realistically, it's a case of that everything from your, as you said, your, you know, your logo down to your, you know, your branding, down to your IP, your back end and your, uh, your front end and back end of your website, etc. So, realistically, there's there's no there's no real reason for any of my SME clients that they shouldn't at least have a chat to you and do that self audit. Uh, <laughs> from from what I've seen so far. Yeah, it's um they're the intangible assets, they're the unseen assets really, and um and they shouldn't be underestimated. That's for sure. They're the source of value and the source of liability, so they they need a bit of attention. Yep. So, so guys, Lisa is uh, definitely our go-to um, IP lawyer. Uh, so, in, in cybersecurity, everything IT uh, for your businesses. Um, so, if you want to reach out, you can reach out directly to Lisa or come through us. When we see um, potential holes in your businesses, we will be referring you anyway. Uh, but is there anything else that you'd like to add, Lisa? No, just thank you very much for having me. It's been lovely to speak and um, appreciate the opportunity. Well, we look forward to having you at our office opening probably this time next year, the way yeah. we're going here in Victoria. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Thank you very much for today, guys. Okay. Thanks, Lisa.